Hello there, friends and folks interested in community. I hope that you are enjoying the Inside Community podcast and all of these amazing people that I've gotten to talk to over the course of our first season. You know, if you are wondering, how could I be more engaged with this podcast? How could I support this podcast and help to keep it going? I've got a great answer for you. Go to ic.org slash podcast and click that donate button. Your financial support really helps to make this whole thing possible. And I so, so appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Inside Community Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Mesritz. For many folks interested in more interconnected ways of living, yet not financially or energetically prepared for something like an income-sharing community, co-housing provides the benefits of greater sustainability and resource sharing, more social and emotional connection, and that beautiful neighborhood vibe, all while allowing members a higher degree of autonomy. In many ways, it can be seen as the best of both community living and the default worlds. Today, we're going to explore the ins and outs of co-housing with my guest, Trish Becker. Trish Becker is the Executive Director of the Co-Housing Association of the United States, COHO US for short, a national nonprofit that seeks to grow the collective housing movement. COHO US supports forming and existing communities, as well as the professionals who build them through education, trainings, resources, and connection. Trish is a founding member of Aria Co-Housing and Chase Street Commons, a microvillage built upon the principles of co-housing. Trish also did a TEDx talk on co-housing and is a passionate advocate for housing solutions that address our collective crises of loneliness, environmental degradation, and housing inaccessibility. Trish Becker, welcome to the Inside Community Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to dive in with you about co-housing, but I first want to start by asking you to give us a little snapshot of your community. Sure. So uh, I am a founding member of a community that we call Chase Street Commons. It has the principles of co-housing infused into it, but we're calling it a micro village because it is on a much smaller scale. So we will have five households. It's on one acre of land on the northwest side of Denver, Colorado. Um, We are prioritizing lots of green space and nature because most of the members will be families with young kids. So the design The intent of the design is to push cars to the periphery and then have really just a free-for-all for for kiddos um, to run between houses and patios. Uh, We also are, we're utilizing existing structures for our community. So there are currently two almost 100-year-old homes on the property. And so those will, we will maintain those homes. And then there's a lot of garage space that we're converting into um, studios for art, co-working, gathering, yoga, common meals, and then we'll have a lot of outdoor common space as well. Beautiful. All that on one acre. Yeah. Yeah. We're packing it in, but also trying to preserve um, kind of the spaciousness. It's really, um, if you were in my neighborhood, you know, Denver is is pretty dense. And so it's a unique piece of property. And so we're trying to keep that like that feel, that spaciousness, that ability to breathe that not only the residents want, but really the surrounding neighbors have really come to value as well. Hmm. Well, I know that it's, I'm understanding, I should say, that this is sort of based on co-housing principles, but for for listeners who aren't familiar with this term co-housing, what is it? What is co-housing and, and how is it different or similar to what people normally think of when they imagine a community? Sure. So co-housing is an intentionally designed neighborhood that prioritizes human connection and support of one another. So if you were looking at it, it's, you know, a co-housing community is a small village-like development where there are individual homes. They are typically condos or townhomes. They also can include single family homes. These private homes are clustered around central 
common space. And so sometimes that's a common house. You know, some communities have these large common houses with a huge communal kitchen and kids space and yoga studios and even a hot tub. It also, the common space can also look like a shared courtyard or a rooftop patio, outdoor kitchen with community gardens. So it really varies. The key piece is that in co-housing, the individual homes are complete and they're private. So they include um, your own kitchen, your own bathrooms, multiple bedrooms or one, two, multiple bedrooms. And that's in addition to the shared spaces. Um, So that's a, a key piece. So when you ask how it's different than what people imagine, I do think that it's different than what people think of when they hear intentional community, specifically in that um, kitchen and bathroom sharing piece. I think that a lot of times people picture sharing those spaces and co-housing that model happens to not share those. But in terms of community, that feeling of belonging to community Uh, I wouldn't say that it's different at all. I think it's exactly what people think of when they think of community. So it's, you know, that that shared time, that concern for one another, the idea that you deeply know each of the people who live in your neighborhood or or building within your community and that you're there for them. You're you're going to show up for them just as they're going to show up for you. Um, You know, co-housing is... um, really a social structure. And that structure allows us to have connections. So most communities have at least weekly meals, they have regular meetings, happy hours, baby showers, all of this structure that allows us um, to be together. And we know that in a society like ours, that tends to be so isolated, so obsessed with the individual, we actually need that structure to be able to come together um, in terms of collective care and support for one another. So that's built into co-housing as well. So, so in this situation, you know, how do people own? Everyone has a condo, but do they actually own their house or are they, what's the ownership structure? Do they have to pay dues? How does this work? So in co-housing, Homes are privately owned. So if it's a condo, a single family home, a townhome, it's owned just like a regular home. And then there's a homeowners association on top of that. And then the dues go towards kind of the maintenance of the community. And then members also have a share in the common spaces. So they're, um, I might want to say that again. Sorry. Okay, so in co-housing, people individually own their homes for the most part. Of course, there are are rental structures, but for the most part, people privately own their homes just like you would. And then there's also an HOA built in. And so that um, covers the common spaces, whether it's a common house or, um, you know, the shared outdoor spaces. And then each owner has a share in in the common space as well. So we function pretty much like a, you know, your standard condo, um, whether detached or attached condo or a homeowners association. So it's pretty, um, it's a well-paved path as far as how the, the property ownership goes. Who, who owns the land? Like who owns so, the land that, that that happens on? Is it an LLC or what is the structure that holds the actual Yeah. So um, for the most part, and this is just speaking to most communities, the land is is owned by the community. Right. So it's it's just like a condo in that like the HOA manages all of the land. And so technically you have a share of the land that's owned. There are other models that utilize a community land trust model, for example, where there would be other ownership. But Typically, the land is is actually owned by the community itself and managed. Hmm. Interesting. I'm just thinking about the community that I was a part of, and and it sounds very, very similar. You know, we each had our own home. We each had our own individual single-family home. We co-owned the land together, but we owned it together as an LLC, mm-hmm. and then we paid HOAs to help maintain and keep things going. The only difference is that because we owned everything together as a 
as an LLC, we actually all paid rent. <laughs> we rented yeah. our spaces from ourselves as opposed to this is my house and I, and I own it. So mm-hmm. I it the next question I guess is then what happens when you don't want to own your house anymore mm-hmm. and you want to sell? How does that yep. is there a process for that? Yeah. Yeah, so um you would, from the real estate perspective, engage in selling your property just like you would any home. You would engage a real estate agent. You would you would sell it, um, and just in the way that you would sell a condo, that would kind of come with the agreement that the new owner would would kind of sign in to to the agreements and the the um, pricing structure of the HOA. On top of that, though, is the social piece. So. Um, many communities have guidelines as far as who comes into their communities. In some cases, it's uh, open to the seller to decide who they will sell it to with the hope that they will sell it to someone who is engaged in community in the same way. Some communities have pretty robust policies as far as, you know, we need to have a new resident come to at least two dinners and meet with us and it's a mutual selection process. Some have uh, first right of refusal built into the governing documents. So it kind of varies. But um, I would say that it's standard to have something um, because it's not a regular real estate transaction. Communities are invested in having new owners um, be someone who is already interested in the community. And I'll add to that that there is not a lot of turnover in co-housing because once you live in community, you typically love it. And so a lot of times the ways that it works is there's a a pretty long wait list for people to get into any existing communities. And so when someone needs to move and sell their unit, they'll go first to that list of people who have said, I've come to the common meals. I'm excited about community. Please let me know when there's a space available. So that social piece is covered through that process. Hmm. That's good to know. It sort of secures the investment, I guess, the real estate investment that people are making. Can you paint a picture for us about what co-housing in America looks like? How many are there? Where are they located? What kind of people are gravitating towards co-housing? Sure. So currently there are around 180 co-housing communities in the U.S. existing co-housing communities. There are about 150 additional communities that are in some stage of formation. So the number of communities has grown exponentially in the past 30-ish years. So um, co-housing as an architectural model was commonplace in Denmark when architects Katie McCammon and Chuck Durrett visited, loved the model, brought it back to the U.S. um, and started supporting communities forming all over the country. So there are communities um, nationwide. Certainly there are pockets that tend to have more for various reasons. We have a lot um, in the Pacific Northwest, Northern California. Um, There's a pocket, you know, in the New England area. Colorado is another hotspot. But really, no two communities look the same. We have urban communities, suburban, very rural. They vary in, you know, the size from one, I think, uh, Grace Kim's community in Capitol Hill in Seattle is less than an acre to 40, 100 acres. Uh, They also vary in terms of the size of individual units. So again, everything from condos to collection of single family homes. And I would say that all types of people live there. Uh, There historically has been a misconception that co-housing is for older adults, and that's simply not the case. So they tend to be intergenerational. So my community, for example, uh, not Chase Street Commons, but the previous co-housing community that I was a co-founder of, it's called Aria Co-Housing. The age range there ranged from a couple of newborns to people in their 80s. And it was really that intergenerational aspect that is probably my favorite thing about living in community. And I can talk more about that as well, just kind of the the sharing of labor and wisdom and love across the generations is such a beautiful part of co-housing. But it's really made up of, of all sorts of people. Although I would say there are certainly shared values 
among co-housers. So these are people who believe in a different way of being. They're people who value human connection. They want to know their neighbor. They want to care for one another. They want to live differently on the planet. They want to prioritize relationships over consumption. Um, So those are our common values among people. I will say co-housing historically uh, has been a largely middle-class endeavor. So I really think that the next great challenge ahead of us as a movement is affordability and access so that we can begin to um, break down uh, the barriers that keep co-housing from being um, more diverse economically, racially, et cetera. Yeah. What, what do you think is possible for that with, with co-housing? I mean, what do you see? Yeah. How do you see co-housing being able to address that? Yeah, totally. Um, it's such an important question. And so uh, co-housing, in theory, um, it can be less expensive to live in, such as, you know, one might be able to live in a smaller footprint home because co-housing builds sharing into the model. So there's, you know, common spaces or a guest room so that I don't have to have a guest room in my own home. We also, sharing is a big part of the ethos of co-housing, sharing of, you know, um, kitchen supplies and bikes. And we have a a saying in co-housing, does everyone need their own lawnmower? And that kind of speaks to the ethos. So, so there's that. And it's no less expensive per square foot to create. So the cost of housing is the cost of housing. And there are only two ways to pay for a new building. You either pay for it directly or with some sort of external subsidies. So uh, co-housing, you know, it's set apart from other housing developments um, in a few ways. Number one, as a community, we tend to care about wealth disparity and economic justice. We care about having fair wages for people who are building the homes. We care about making human connection accessible to all. I believe, and many people in the movement believe that co-housing is an element of a better world. And so we, we care and we desire to ensure that that future that we imagine is possible for everyone. So we do a few things to make housing more accessible. We think outside of the box. We, you know, we reduce our square footage and therefore our cost by building common spaces. We explore innovative building strategies that can reduce building costs, but still pay a fair wage to those people who are doing the building. And we look for external funding to subsidize costs. We even, many communities really look at themselves. So many co-housing communities have self-subsidized affordable units within their communities as a way to put action behind their values. But when you look at the entire movement of co-housing, this is not a scalable approach. So as a co-housing movement, we have to continue to advocate for more fair housing and zoning policies. We have to look for and advocate for robust funding streams to create affordable housing for all. Um, you know, we have to look at ways to partner with community land trusts. How can we incorporate limited equity cooperative models? How can we um, open the door to rentals or more rent to own options? Like there are many ways that we can create ways um, we can create more affordability and access within our communities. And I think that there's a lot of inspiring things on the horizon as far as housing policy. You know, California just passed two pieces of legislation, SB 9 and 10, which basically allows individuals, individual homeowners to um, subdivide their lots and have up to three additional homes on their property. So the goal of that was to increase density and therefore, you know, increase housing inventory and then therefore tackle affordability. I see that as an opportunity for us to take the ethos of co-housing and support people, not just in having additional homes on their lap, but okay, how do you make that a micro village or a co-housing community? How do you build intention then into the space that you've developed? Um, And then that can intersect, intersect with a more affordable strategy. Mm, I really, I love that. I love the idea of 
um, yeah, building in those more interconnectedness, more interdependence into that. And as I'm thinking about, I mean, I have a few questions about all of the things that you just said, but, you know, when I think about someone who might want to create a co-housing reality somewhere where they live, you know, that brings up a lot for me around like, what are the steps? How would someone go about mm-hmm. doing that? And it seems like there's two two aspects. There's the community building aspect, and then there's the actual physical, like what's legal, what does zoning allow for? So mm-hmm. I would love to sort of dive into some of that. Maybe maybe yeah. we tackle the the more legal kind of zoning aspects first. How, how do people do that? Because a lot of places I'm thinking, I mean, I know, I'm sure Denver, I know most desirable cities where people would want to live have a lot of restrictions. I mean, California's got restrictions. Oregon has restrictions. You know, a lot of these, a lot of states have a lot of restrictions. And short of moving out to, you know, certain counties in Missouri, like where Dancing Rabbit is, where you can just do whatever mm-hmm. you want, not all of us want to live in Missouri. So what do you do? Right. How do you how do you approach your local government and get permission to do these kind of things? Yeah, it's a great question. We often say that forming a community, a co-housing community is kind of like a chess game. Like you have to kind of move one piece a little bit, you then, you know, the next one a little bit until you have all these pieces. One of those, of course, is like you're gathering your people, you're in the potluck stage, you're saying, hey, we have a dream. Does anyone want to share in this dream? Who wants to talk about a different way to live together? So you're gathering those people, then simultaneously, maybe you're looking for land, maybe you've found land, but you're working on getting enough people to be able to buy it. You're also then looking for your professionals, your consultants, um, a developer who shares your passion, that sort of thing. So you're moving them along. And then when you get to the question of land, gosh, there are so many different scenarios out there, you know, sometimes. So in in the ARIA community that I helped found, it was the developer who had the land and she wanted to do something more intentional with that development. And so she found a group of burning souls and said, hey, let's make a co-housing community out of this. So that's one way. Um, Another story could be that someone, a group of people might find land that's zoned uh, for residential. And so they will have to engage in a rezoning process, which includes community engagement. That's what we're doing here at Chase Street Commons. So our land is currently zoned for one home. um, So one acre zoned for one small home in the middle of Denver in the middle of a housing crisis just feels absurd to me. So our intent, of course, is to rezone it so that we can build additional homes here. I will say one piece. So the rezoning is often an element of a development. So developers often buy land, then they have to get city councils support, the planning department support, as well as the neighbors support. And that's where people get stuck a lot. And so this is a benefit of co-housing in that developers who are working on a co-housing community have a built-in like community engagement team, right? So if a developer can go to their burning souls and say, hey, show up at this community meeting, tell them what co-housing is all about, tell them how much you love this community that you're a part of as well. It really makes the development seem less scary when people see what it's about and the human faces that are behind it. So um, that process is is often a little bit uh, easier or unique in that way with co-housing. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking about how we might potentially, and I have no idea what the future holds, but part of our vision where we are is to build community. And, you know, we live in an area where you you get your your one house. It doesn't really matter whether that one house is on five acres, 40 acres, or mm-hmm. 160 acres, which are the sizes of all the of the plots that we basically are are sort of connected with. And it's yeah. it seems crazy to me. It seems crazy to me, mm-hmm. especially because there is a housing crisis. There is a shortage of affordable housing for people. So how yeah. do you start to, bridge that gap in a way. And I, mm-hmm. I, what I really appreciate is that there is a community building aspect to this 
that's beyond the community that you're building. It's also your the mm. greater community that you're starting to engage. You have to be engaged in your local politics. You have to mm-hmm. be engaged in your local social dynamics. You have to make good neighbors and invite them over for dinner. And, yep. and yeah, just start building more interdependence even outside of the project that you're working on, which I think is yeah. a really beautiful sort of side effect of of creating that. Yes, I completely agree. We also have some, we actually have data to back that up. There was a study a few years ago that showed that members of residents of co-housing communities are more civically engaged than the average American. And we like to think about co-housing communities as these little microcosms of what we would like to see in a healthy democracy. So there are these spaces where people enter intentionally. They say, we're going to have to work through our stuff. We're going to have conflict. We're going to have fun, but we're going to have conflict. We're going to disagree. We're going to have difference between us. And yet we're going to engage in that in an intentional and healthy way. And so the hope is that what we model within community will ripple outwards. It will, we will open our doors to the surrounding neighborhoods. We will be engaged. We will, you know, be engaged in local politics. We will be community organizing around causes that matter to us. And then that will ripple outwards to create a healthy democracy. I mean, this is the ideal, of course, but but that's what co-housing communities believe in. They believe that they're modeling healthy democracy within their communities and that that will have an impact on the wider world. The Inside Community Podcast is sponsored by the Foundation for Intentional Community. If you are enjoying this conversation with Trish Becker and learning about co-housing, I'd like to recommend checking out the IC.org bookstore. There they have books on all kinds of topics related to community, but they have a few books in stock on co-housing, specifically Creating Co-Housing, the Senior Co-Housing Handbook, and an ebook called Co-Housing for Life, all available to you right now. If you use the code INSIDE20, I've got a 20% off coupon for my podcast listeners, and that's available to use on any of the books in the bookstore. So check that out now at ic.org. Another amazing resource for your investigations into community is Communities Magazine. Communities Magazine has been a primary resource for information, stories, and ideas about community living and collaborative culture for 50 years. Communities is a publication of the Global Eco Village Network, and you can learn more about the magazine at gen-us.net slash communities. Of course, I will have a link in the show notes. But when you go there, you can subscribe to their digital archive, which is going to give you access to 50 years worth of articles and writings and stories about community life, governance, collaborative culture, all of the things that are related to how to live better together. I definitely recommend checking it out. You can also get their print magazine, which will come right to your house and you can add it to your community library. So check out Communities Magazine today to explore the joys and challenges of cooperation and its many dimensions. I'd like to come back to this idea that we were touching into before around affordability and, you know, this, the co-housing movement thus far being something of a middle-class endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I can kind of hear what I'm imagining coded inside of there is whiteness and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of the quote unquote norms, <laughs> mm-hmm. what we've, what we've decided is cu- culturally normal as opposed to what is quote unquote different. And yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, how does the co-housing movement or have you seen any specific co-housing groups address, you know, age, race, gender, ability in, in good ways inside mm-hmm. of their communities? Yeah. Um, I'll probably say too much about this, so feel free to use what <laughs> uh, use what what works for you. So, 
To answer that question, I always want to start big with like the foundations of <laughs> our our nation, our housing policy, right? Like what we know of housing, of property ownership, of zoning, like all of the policies that uphold our system are exclusionary, they are racist, they are classist. And co-housing seeks to push against this by creating an alternative way to live, first of all. So the model of co-housing is in opposition to this culture of white supremacy, individualism, greed, materialism, environmental degradation. That exists and, and in little pockets throughout the country, people are saying, let's do things differently. Let's choose people over profit. Let's work on affordable housing, even if that means paying for it out of our own pockets. Let's share our stuff instead of buying and wasting things. Let's look out for one another instead of just looking out for number one and our own financial gain. So that lays the foundation of what co-housing is interested in. And then, so you have that ethos, those values, but co-housers, they back that up. So as I mentioned, studies show that um, residents of co-housing communities are significantly more politically engaged than the average American. So they're demonstrating and organizing against unjust policies. They're practicing dialogue across difference and then taking those skills out into the community to build coalitions. So there is an integrity there. Um, Co-housing communities are putting their values into practice. Um, so that's all like on this macro level. But then within your communities, co-housing communities, again, are home to people of many different identities. And they each vary in how diversity, equity, and inclusion is addressed, but they are all built on the foundation of inclusion in decision-making and a structure that values each voice with equal weight. So we talk a lot about decision-making and conflict resolution, um, how we make decisions for the whole within co-housing community. And the important piece is that in co-housing, there is no leader. It is a completely horizontal social structure. And we create structures that allow each member's voice to be heard with equal weight. Of course, we know that equality and equity are not the same thing. And a horizontal social structure can still silence those with marginalized identities. And so communities are working to address that in many different ways. Some are engaging with professionals. Um, some are, are doing it themselves to ensure that their community processes are structured in a way that centers marginalized voices. And then another big part of this that comes up for me when you ask the question is around labor. So community, of course, it requires labor to keep up the physical space, to keep the social infrastructure going. And labor in communities, by and large, is built with varying needs and abilities in mind. So this applies to age, ability, beyond. Some communities are using a model uh, called time banking, which values everyone's time equally and builds a structure for individuals to give what they're able to, what they enjoy doing, and receive equal acknowledgement as everyone else. Um, so I'll give an example of this. In our community, in Aria co-housing community, the first community that we were a part of, um, my partner and I both worked and we had a baby right after we moved into the community. And we relied so much on the elders, the retired folks in our community to provide childcare. I mean, it completely transformed parenthood for me. Um, not only just in that it filled this gap that was there, but it also just felt so good to have my daughter in the care of community members, people who care about her so much. Um, and then within within her own home. And at the same time, my partner is a great carpenter. And so he um, was, he initiated this, the building of this gorgeous built-in bookshelf in the library of the community. And so he had that skill to offer. That's not a skill that I have offer to offer. I'm, um, I'm the organized one. So I organized all the volunteers, the materials. And then while this was happening, the elders are taking care of the kids. And so 
this just speaks to the way that we honor different people's strengths, abilities, um, what they have an abundance of um, or uh, a lack of, and we create space for each people, each person to enter as they are. So I'll end with one point that I believe. So communities, human communities, specifically communities of color, have been doing collectivism and doing it well for as long as humans have existed. Co-housing is not this new concept. We didn't think of the idea that we should come together and support in one another. Rather, co-housing is one attempt among many to recreate what has been intentionally dissolved by white supremacy and capitalism. It serves the interests of both to keep us separated and apart. And so co-housing is just trying to rebuild a more natural way of being. Hmm. I like that a lot. I, I really appreciate the <laughs> that philosophical stance. Hmm. That like, no, this is actually how we were supposed to be doing it. Right. And then we somehow started to take a left turn somewhere along the way. And now we're just trying to get back to being natural people living in a more natural uh, way that is exactly. interdependent and is interconnected. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. It has always felt to me like community is not just a decision. It's like, it's in us. There's this longing to be with other people, to live differently. And maybe I'm projecting my own experience, but I just feel like the way that our society has been constructed with this obsession with screens and materialism and self um, and climbing the ladder and the hustle and, and all of that, it feels so unnatural at a cellular level. And of course, like humans are not meant to live this way. We're meant to live in connection with one another. And so I think that there are many models of communal living, for example, that are just trying to like break down this stuff that we've built up around ourselves so that we can return to the way that we're meant to live. Yeah. I'll say in reflection to all of that, that. I actually know a little bit about co-housing. <laughs> I'm asking all these questions, understanding that not all of our listeners do. Totally. And I have, I will admit that I have a little bit of a preconception of co-housing um, as being on an, the end of a spectrum of mm -hmm. community. And I, I don't think that this is a shock to anyone, but it's definitely more on the mainstream end of the spectrum as opposed to, you know, a full income sharing community. But there's a lot of, of ranges in between. And, you know, I guess I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on, on its placement in the spectrum. And there's things that you're saying that make me think, mm -hmm. oh, well, this isn't really all that different from what we did before. But I think mm -hmm. in my in my mind and my understanding, it feels like there's not as much interdependence somehow because the ownership structure is it sort of allows for people to still have their own like their own house that maybe they can or they can't interact with the community or I don't know I don't not really even mm -hmm. sure where that picture in my mind came from, but. I'm hoping that you can kind of shed some light on that for us and just talk about where yeah. you see co-housing in that spectrum and is that a fair assessment and and maybe this is a growth edge or maybe it's something that's already been dealt with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that you you described much of what is true about co-housing as well as the spectrum of communal living models. There there is a spectrum and co-housing is certainly on one end of it. Um, a few thoughts. So I think that it serves us, us being like the big us, the human race, right? <laughs> to have many points on the spectrum for people to enter because not everyone is going to be comfortable with a completely resource sharing commune, but maybe they crave 
just something different than the traditional American dream than the suburban lifestyle. So I think that in order to invite more people into the movement, the more models that we have, the better, um, because we can, you know, we know that living in community is kinder to the planet. It is kinder to other humans. It invites a different way of being in the world. Um, and so, so I see it as a benefit to have many points on that spectrum. I will say in relation to others, you know, co-housing, we like to speak to balance. We like to speak to this balance of privacy and community. So a lot of people who enter co-housing, they want to know that they can have their private space, that they're not um, going to be asked to be in communal interactions at all times. And so the way that the model was built is to honor that desire for balance so that people have a private home, their own kitchens, that sort of thing, but then are invited into much more community connection than your traditional neighborhood. That really works for a lot of people. And then I'll speak to the piece about like the finances because certainly that is a question I think that historically co-housing has tried to distance itself from like the commune side of the spectrum. And I think that does us a disservice actually because research has shown that one of the things that creates the most connection to a community or um, that correlates with success of a community actually is the resource sharing. And so I'm not suggesting that co-housing should do that. I think co-housing has its place on the spectrum and that's wonderful. And I just think that um, maybe it serves us more to open ourselves up to what um, what elements of that might be infused in, in our model. So um, one of those might be this discussion around private ownership and does ownership have to be financial or is there a way to convey ownership in a community through one's time and labor rather than just their ability to actually financially own a unit. So that's an example of ways that I think that we can kind of learn from other points on the spectrum, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a relational piece that I'm, that I'm also aware that I have a a conception around that in a co-housing situation, because there is this this privacy and this little bit more autonomy. I mean, there are there are to preface there are other communities that also honor privacy that are not co-housing that do have people in their separate spaces, and also this sort of bolstering of personal privacy and autonomy. I wonder how co-housing addresses when someone isn't connected, when someone isn't contributing in the community or when they are in conflict even and um how does co-housing or have you seen in co-housing examples of people addressing that either bringing people back in or saying I don't know what do you do when someone moves in they've bought their place they're a member and they're not getting along with people you know it's like what what do you do in those situations Right. Yeah. And that certainly is a challenge that I think probably every community has experienced at some point in their life cycle is this like people aren't engaged the way I expected them to be or the way that I'd hoped them to be. There's this dynamic too where, you know, the the burning souls, the original members of a community were kind of the majority for a long time and then life happens, time goes on, a community maybe then the majority of community members are are new people who see things functioning differently. And so this exists. I think a couple thoughts on how a community can be successful. So first of all, co-housing communities follow the same stages of group formation. Um, you know, the like you've probably heard of forming, storming, norming, and performing. Like that's a natural part of community. So often there is this like storming phase where you're like, there's a lot of tension and conflict here. Um, and so I think that um the more that 
a community can recognize this and have a little bit of levity around it, I think that will serve a community. Also, just, you know, a community that's been around longer and has been through these phases is going to have that kind of perspective as well as experience and how to manage that. So um, I also think that communities that have established very intentional conflict resolution practices will do well in this space. So many communities have kind of a conflict resolution team or sort of an ombudsman and then a very low level of entry so that it's not like, oh, we got to this point where there's this huge conflict. Now we have to go to the conflict resolution team, but rather entering into this process as soon as anything's noticed. Like I have just a tingle of attention that might start to form. Let's just engage someone else at this early stage. And so I think that your question around participation, the more that we're able to invite people in at that very, very early stage and then assess what gives them meaning, you know, what, okay, you haven't been engaged in preparing common meals. I had no idea that it's because you um, either hate cooking or have a tricky relationship with food. Like the more that we invite you in and get to know you as a person, the more that we can understand where you're coming from and then find ways to engage you what would what would give you meaning for engaging in this community what would feel good for you how would you feel seen as a whole person um and therefore we can increase engagement from there i also think this is something that i feel like is overlooked in communities a lot but is so important it is critical that we prioritize fun as much as work. So when we're talking about engagement, we cannot just say this person isn't showing up to committee meetings often enough. Like community does take labor. That is true. But it shouldn't feel like it's another thing on the work to-do list. Like this is where we live. This is our home. This is our community. So it's important that we find space to celebrate and have fun and get to know one another as humans rather than like what they bring to the community. And that I think will weave a strong fabric and one that people will want to engage with. I really appreciate how often I hear, you know, my, the response to these kind of kinds of questions about, okay, but what about conflict? Cause <laughs> I think a lot of people probably have that question, but what about like when you don't get along or people aren't, you know, and that feels to me like a huge stumbling block for people to engage in community. And I am deeply appreciating your response. And the response that I get so frequently is curiosity. Mm. Like, what's, you know, instead of, ah, that person's not acting the way I want them to act and I'm going to retreat, it's like, how about if we just lean in? How about if we say, hey, what's really going on for you? Is there some need that you have that's not being met? Is there another way that we could meet that need? I have this need that's not being met. Can Would you be willing to meet me somewhere in, in doing that? And this continual falling into each other instead of the perceived safety, I guess, of autonomy and yeah. saying, oh, I don't like that person, so I'm just going to pull back and pull my energy back, you know? And it really is that shifting polarity. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone wants to be seen, right? Like we all just want to be seen as who we are. And then of course we all want to be loved. Um, and so that's the greatest thing we can do for one another is just really see each other. And you can do that by, by starting with curiosity, as you said so beautifully. Hmm. I do want to come back to time banking because yeah. this is this is a, an interesting concept and I don't know that we've talked about it on the show very much. And so I'd love for you to sort of just share a little bit about what your experience is with that. How does that work? You know, sure. if these p kindly older folks are watching your baby, how does that, do they get paid or is there, does everybody have hours it's due? How does this work? Yeah, Sure. <laughs> Uh, I love time banking as a model. And I will say just for the clarity of anyone listening who's new to co-housing, time banking is not inherently part of co-housing. And it's a model that uh, I think people are getting increasingly curious about. So time banking is uh, an alternative 
currency model. It's an anti-capitalist model that is built on the idea that everyone's time is worth the same. So in our current structure, if you're a web designer, for example, you might make, I don't know, $125 an hour, but someone who cares for a child might make $15 an hour. And so this works against that idea and says, we're all humans. And one hour of my time is actually worth the same as one hour of anyone's time. And so in time making, there's this model where anytime you give an hour of your time to something, instead of getting paid for that, you would get an hour credit, basically. So Rebecca, let's use us as an example. Let's say I cut your hair and it took two hours. You would quotes, pay me two hours, I would have two hour credits that then I could spend with my neighbor who's going to fix my computer. And those two hours are equal. So we're exchanging that money. And what that does beyond like creating this horizontal structure and saying that every time everyone's time is worth the same, it also rewards work that in our current structure is not compensated for work like creating strong communities like um, organizing people around a political movement, like caring for the elderly, like cleaning up um, the neighborhood, that sort of thing. You can create a model where people are getting credits for those times and then can use it on things that will benefit their individual life. And is this tracked through an app or a spreadsheet? How How do people actually track that? Yeah. So to my knowledge, there are a few websites and apps, and I think there were like a few startups that were creating some apps built on this principle. But I will say I I stopped researching those when I saw that then you could trade your time credits for gift cards at stores. And I just thought, well, that just completely undoes the whole idea of like anti-capitalism. But yeah, there are... um, a few, I can't think of the name of them right now, but there are a few websites out there. And a lot of people do just have kind of a coordinator who coordinates the time on a spreadsheet and is kind of the exchange person. And then of course, they would be rewarded for their time in managing the time bank with credits as well. Mm, That's brilliant. I really love that. Yeah, I mean, I could see that also just being something that works in a whole you know, not just in your little community, but you could, in your greater community, you know, something that could really be applicable on a larger, a larger scale. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, we kind of talked a little bit before about if someone wanted to, I mean, obviously there are co-housing places out there that people could ostensibly join, but if someone was interested in, in starting something like this or learning more about it, you know, I'm guessing this is a pretty involved process to start one. You know, you talked about engaging with, um, let me, let me rephrase that. Let me go back. So for someone who is interested, I know we talked a little bit about wanting to potentially start a co-housing, of course, they could always go and and join another one. Um, But if someone was interested in getting one off the ground, getting one started, you were a co-founder, you know, you talked about working with a, with a designer and getting community engagement. At what point, can you kind of break it down just a little bit further? Like, do you, when do you start to look for the land? What, what are, what are the kind of steps that are required? Um, I mean, or what resources does Coho US have, Cohousing US have to support people in, in figuring some of those things out? Sure. Yeah. Um, I hesitate to give a step-by-step because there are so many different paths But yes, if you wanted to start a co-housing community, the first thing I would do is try and find other people with a shared dream in your area. And you might actually go one step backwards, start visiting existing communities, uh, which you can just do 
Um, you can identify via our directory, the Coho US directory. So find some communities, start visiting them, um, go to some common meals, get to know what it's all about, get to know who else they know, because oftentimes co-housing communities are connected with other people who um, either can't get into that community or, or are working on building their own. So that would be a place that I would start. Then once you have a group, there's a threshold where you're ready to start engaging professionals who can help you with the design, the buying of the land, the development, who can kind of provide consultation and guidance on the process. So that's what we did about a year after we had our land. We engaged with a, a consultant who has kind of held us accountable and walked us through the steps of, okay, first you need to rezone. Here's what that will require because, you know, most co-housing community members or burning souls are not developers themselves. So there's no way to know this thing. So that's a good time to engage professionals. Coho US does offer quite a bit in this space. So we're a good place to start. First of all, if you just want to learn what co-housing is about, uh, how to do it, what it's like once you're in, that sort of thing, that's what we provide. So Coho US provides virtual and in-person programming that's designed to support everyone from the burning souls, which is a term that we use a lot in co-housing and an intentional community just to mean like the people with the dream and with the commitment to bringing that dream to life. So we support everyone from them to the veteran communitarians to the professionals who help get communities built and thriving. So our topics of programming that's upcoming as well as we have tons of resources, recorded events, all sorts of things, everything from how to acquire land, how to build a community, how to build deeper engagement among your residents, how to prioritize equity inclusion, how to have more fun, that sort of thing. So we have a wealth of resources there. We also have a number of partnership programs for individuals as well as forming or existing communities. So um, we, I think we'll have the link in the show notes for that, but a number of ways for folks to plug in and start getting those trainings, those resources, that staffing support. Um, and another recommendation that I would make is to attend the National Co-Housing Conference in August in Madison, Wisconsin. We are overdue um, because we rescheduled from last year and we're actually going to have an in-person live conference. And traditionally, our co-housing conferences are spaces for people to get the training and the resources that they want, but also just to connect with people with shared dreams and to connect with the professionals that can help make it happen. So those would be my recommendations. I'll also mention that uh, we have a robust directory and listing of communities. And when I say communities, that might be a group of people in the potluck stage. It might be an existing community with an opening. Um, so we have um, a listing of ways that people can plug in with other groups. Mm, sounds like a really excellent and robust resource library that you have. I love that there'll be people actually at the conference that are supporting, uh, you know, the professionals that are there as well. That's great. I feel like, yeah, I could see that being a stumbling block for a lot of people. Just, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> like, this is a lot. Totally. Yeah. And we were right there too, you know, just because you have a dream doesn't mean that you have the knowledge or skill set to make it happen. So you got to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm curious because you are newly the director of COHO and where do you see this movement evolving to? Where do you see the co-housing movement growing? I get really excited about this movement when I think about the ethos of co-housing, this idea that people want to live in a place where they know and care for their neighbors, that they want common space to share and to gather. That's what I mean when I say the ethos. When I think about the co-housing ethos being applied to different forms of housing to explore access uh, and, and affordability. So one example actually is Chase Street Commons, the community that we're forming here. So 
very much built on the ethos of co-housing. We will have shared meals. We will have shared decision-making. We are entering, each one of the members are entering with an intention to be in deep community with one another. And yet it looks pretty different than a piece of land that then we build new homes and a common house on. Rather, we're reusing community space. We're turning our garages into our common house or you know, our common space, and we'll have a lot of outdoor space. We are also different in that we're exploring using a ground lease model, which is basically where we um, allow our incoming community members to pay for the land over time because traditionally the cost of land is about 30%, the cost of an entire home. And uh, banks are confused by this model. And so we're able to offer the ability to pay for that over time instead of having um, families need to come in with that money in cash. So um, that's just one example of how I see the co-housing ethos being applied to different models. So we're talking a lot within our organization and within the movement about the definition of co-housing, because there are some critical pieces to co-housing, if we're going to call it that. And the first of those is intention. The other one is common spaces. And that common space piece of the definition is an area where I think that we can we can push a little bit, where we can say a community doesn't have to have a common house. And in fact, if we explore different types of common spaces, we can increase access and affordability. So one example is a community that I recently visited called Troy Gardens, which is in Madison, Wisconsin. They had a common house in their design, but um, they were building their community. Um, the, The building of the community coincided with the 2008 housing crash. And so they were never able to build their common house And they are no less co-housing as a result. They just gather at people's homes. They picnic in the shared green space, that sort of thing. So I do think that there are some areas um, within the definition of co-housing that we can kind of uh, push at the edges while maintaining the critical pieces, which is a balance of privacy and communal space. That's a critical piece of co-housing that I think needs to be maintained. And then that intention piece. So um, I get excited about these co-housing adjacent models, you know, having the social infrastructure of co-housing matched with a limited equity co-op or partnering with community land trusts to bring down the cost of housing. These sorts of things get me really excited. I also am excited As I mentioned, um, there's housing legislation that is really paving the way for us all to have little villages. So this housing legislation out of California is widely expected to um, spread to other parts of the U.S. And that would be so exciting because then people who felt like joining or building a co-housing community was unattainable they can explore how they can build community into their lives where they currently live. Mm. Beautiful. Well, I hold that vision for co-housing <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that you're out at the front lines spearheading this <laughs> movement. Trish Becker, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you about this. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. It was a joy. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation with Trish Becker. I hope that you have learned a lot about co-housing and get a chance to go and check out some co-housing near you and see if it's a good option for you and your community journey. I'm going to have links in the show notes on all kinds of stuff. I'm going to have a link to the National Co-Housing Conference that's coming up in Madison, Wisconsin, August 26th to 28th. I'm going to have links to Trish's TEDx talk about co-housing that I definitely recommend listening to. I'll also have links to the IC.org bookstore where you can use that Inside 20 coupon code to get 20% off the books of your choice. 
and and more and more. So please go check out the show notes and you can um, follow up on some of these things that we started to talk about in today's episode. If you've enjoyed this show, I hope that you will come and find me on Facebook or Instagram at Inside Community Podcast or even on TikTok at Inside Community. And if this content has been meaningful or helpful to you, please subscribe, rate, and review and share with your friends and maybe even consider visiting ic.org slash podcast to make a donation and help us keep the show going. Thank you so much, everyone. I look forward to seeing you next time.